Welcome to Most Popular. I'm Adrienne Trierbenik. It was pointed out to me on social media that I don't say my name at the beginning of an episode, which is really embarrassing, uh, but here we go. I'm Adrienne Trierbenik. Thank you so much. I'm so happy you clicked on my show, and thank you for taking the time to get a little pop of culture in your day. This is episode number four. I'm learning a lot as I do this, and thank you so much for those of you who have been listening and giving me this opportunity. Before I introduce my guest, I have a little housekeeping. If you go to my website, which is mostpopularpod.com, you can sign up for my newsletter, and I'll be sending out emails with new podcast announcements, bonus material contests, and calls for guests. If you have an area of expertise related to pop culture, I really would love to hear about it. Um, Right now, I'm looking for people who are experts in the area of camp, and not like camping with like a tent and a fire, but camp like style or ironically bad taste. Um, Like the theme of the Met Ball this year was camp. So if you're interested, if you know someone who's interested, please head to mostpopularpod.com and send me a message. My guest today is my friend and my writing buddy, Amanda Pullum. Amanda is a social movements expert. We talk a lot about activism and social media and the aftermath of the 2016 election, and um, what that meant to get people active, what that meant for getting people active. Amanda gives chocolate recommendations, uh, and so much more. So a little bit about her. Um, Amanda is an assistant professor of sociology at California State University, Monterey Bay. She studies social movement strategy and alliances between social movement organizations, Her work has examined grassroots movements for public schools, marriage equality activism and opposition, the Tea Party, the feminist movement, and the labor movement. She knows her social movements. Uh, Currently, she is investigating historical partnerships between teachers' unions and non-union organizations. Her research has appeared in the journals Mobilization and Social Currents, as well as several edited volumes, including two of my books, Um, One was Feminist Theory and Pop Culture, and the other is The Politics of Gender. As always, you can get more information on the website, uh, including discussion questions or or questions for classrooms, listening groups, as well as for the reading and information on what we talk about. And I Um, really, I hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to start with some real basic questions because uh, I'm not sure how much people know about what makes something a social movement or what makes an organization activist or what a union is or any of that stuff. So let's just start with some real basic information. So what, how do you define a social movement? What is that? Uh, So I define a social movement as being collective, being sustained, um, being an organized effort to either promote or prevent some kind of social change. Um, and using at least some tactics that are outside the traditional methods that you might use to influence the status quo. And I know there's a whole lot to unpack there. Um, so just really quickly, collective, meaning it's not just one person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in order to be a social movement, you have to have other people who are also working with you. Mm-hmm. Um, sustained meaning that it's not just a one-time thing that you need to keep going over a period of time to try to reach your goals. Um, Organized, it's not just like a group of people who are a flash mob or something like that. They um, are working together intentionally to try to achieve their goals. 
um, social movements might want to change something about society, and they often do want to do that, but they also might want to keep something from being changed, and that can also be a social movement. Um, and then finally, they might use some kinds of traditional political actions, like get off the vote efforts or voter registration or endorsing a candidate or something like that. Um, but a social movement is also going to use some actions that wouldn't be considered traditional politics. So like a street protest is the one that most people would think about. Yeah. Um, what is, because I know in your research, you talk a lot about activist organizations. So what does that mean? Uh, so when we're thinking about like what makes an organization activist versus what makes it another kind of organization, yeah, um, I think we can also think about you know what makes a person an activist, and then think about what makes an organization activist, right? Um, because they're both really simple questions on the surface, but sometimes the simplest questions are the hardest ones to answer. Yeah. Um, so like thinking about right now. Um, one thing that scholars debate is the role of online activism. Like, mm. is an individual an activist if they share a lot of things about an issue on social media? And there are absolutely folks who would say no, that you need to actually show up to meetings or events to be an activist. And I don't agree with those folks. Yeah, uh, I think that we need to consider that you know there are a lot of people who want to be activists, yet they're not able to show up to meetings. Um, they might you know work three jobs or have a family and family responsibilities or have medical conditions that make them hard, uh, make it hard for them to go to events or things like that. Um, so first, in order to define like, who is an activist, um, I think we need to take into account, you know, people's needs and ability to participate. Um, and the way I think about it is that there are a lot of different levels of engagement and ways for a person to be an activist. So if someone is consistently working to promote an issue to the extent that they're able to do that, then I think that that individual is an activist. Um, and so going back to the original question, I think that an activist organization is especially defined by that kind of work that's outside of traditional channels. Um, so if you're working in an established um, like political structure, like your political party, mm -hmm. um, you're really engaged with the existing social institutions rather than doing that kind of um, less traditional work, then you might be an advocacy group, um, you might be an interest group, something like that. And so, of course, there is space for organizations like that in the social change process. And they do absolutely do important work around a lot of different social issues. They just wouldn't necessarily think of as what, wouldn't really think of what I think of as activist. Does it's, that make sense? Yeah, it's so, it's so interesting that you you put it like that, because I think one of the big debates in feminist activism and in feminist communities is, is it enough to speak out about inequality through social media? So Instagram and Twitter and posting about these things. Um, I was listening to a podcast, I think it was a Pod Save America podcast, where they found out that um, only like 20% of people who are on Twitter are actually like reading the information, which is pretty low. It just means people are aimlessly mm -hmm. scrolling, I think. Um, it, but it's a big debate in in gender studies communities um, and in studies of activism for feminism. Um, I tend to think what you do, I, which is probably why we're friends, um, I <laughs> tend to think that um, there is something to the push of social media. And, you know, I guess in another way, we also saw that with the 2016 election, right? Like how much social media impacted uh, and the activism, I guess, if you want to call it that, impacted 
an election or the way people were voting. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, there is something there. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. You know, and I think that for many people, what they do online, um, sometimes it is what they're able to do. And, you know, as mm-hmm. I mentioned, I think we need to take that into account. But sometimes also it motivates them to do other things, too. Yeah. So you might kind of get your feet wet, so to speak, by posting things on Twitter or Facebook. And then maybe that gives you the confidence to go out to a meeting or to talk to your friends in person or to do other things. So it can also be somebody's entire activism. It can be a stepping stone. It can be a piece of their activism. There are a lot of different ways to be an activist. I think that's also something that's connected to like, um, I think of March for Our Lives, which was not entirely um, orchestrated using social media, but a lot of it was. I mean, that was really driven by um, students using social media and getting the word out about what they were doing and where they were doing it in different communities for people to march on the same day. Right. It's been absolutely instrumental in organizing so many of the recent protests that we've seen. Yeah. Heard about them, not just in the U.S., but of course in other parts of the world, too. So um, social media played such a huge role in things like the Arab Spring movement. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's absolutely yes. something that we have to consider in modern activism. And so I think that there is a school of thought that says, well, people are still just kind of doing the same things that they always did, but now they have new technology. Yeah. Um, so you're still trying to organize people, right? You're still trying to get the word out. Um, you use whatever technological tools you have at the time. Um, but I think that social media opens up opportunities that activists may not have had mm-hmm. in the past. So, you know, they had phone trees in the past. Right? <laughs> people absolutely would call up their friends mm-hmm. um, and say, please come to this event. Um, but just thinking about the massive number of people that you can reach using social media. Uh, That's something that has not been easy to accomplish in previous eras. Yeah, I I like the the connection to the history of it. Um, We wrote a a piece together for one of my books where we talked about the song, Which Side Are You On? That was a Mm Ani DeFranco song, and it was a cover of a Florence Florence Reese song. And Florence Reese wrote it as a way to organize union workers right, to get people um, Mm -hmm. in the know of what they're standing for, what they're doing. And she used this kind of repetitive jingle as a way to let people know it was like her social media of the time was to write this (laughs) song and let people know what's going on. Yeah. You know, know, popular media can spread a message extremely quickly and it can spread it to an audience that might not otherwise have stopped to listen. Mm Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little yeah, bit about you. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. No, I was just <laughs> going to say, I think that that's one of the, the beautiful things about music that has an activist message to it is that even people who don't already identify as activists might listen to that song and they might sort of stop to think, you know, that lyric gets caught in their heads and they kind of turn it over for a while and maybe they see something differently than they used to. I think they do. There's a lot of stuff that supports this idea that music can change your perspective. Um, I mean, even mm-hmm. just look at the uh, This Is America, the Childish Gambino. I think it's at like some insane number of YouTube views, like 500 million or I, I don't know. It's it's a lot. 
it's so much that when I bring yeah. it up in class, students look at me like, yeah, I've seen it like six times. You don't need to show it to us. Yeah. <laughs> or they say, let's watch We've it again. It. <laughs> <laughs> or they say, let's see it again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to I want to talk a little bit about you so we can kind of share how you ended up doing this work. I think it's fascinating how people end up in their area of expertise. Um, sure, yeah, I can talk about, you know, my background and how I became a scholar in this field. Yeah. Um, I grew up uh, in the rural Appalachian coal field out mm -hmm. in the mountains of rural Virginia. And that area's economy has really been based historically um, in coal mining and other uh, natural resource extractive industries like natural gas and logging. But mm -hmm. coal was huge. And over the last few decades, there have been fewer and fewer jobs available in the coal industry. Um, it used to be that people could graduate from high school and, or not even graduate from high school, maybe just leave school early and go into the coal mines. And they had extremely dangerous jobs, but those jobs paid really well and people could support a family doing that. And in more recent times, that's not really the case. Yeah. Um, more often, those jobs are done by machines. Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to work in the mines, you need specialized education and training that not everybody is able to get. And so since there are fewer and fewer jobs available, a lot of people have moved out of the area to find work. And one of the things that that did is it left the local school board struggling to fund all of these public schools that were there for the bigger population. Mm -hmm. And then as the population shrinks, mm -hmm. you know, what happens to the tax base that keeps those schools open? And so some of the school boards, including the one in my community, wanted to solve this problem by closing some of the schools and sending the kids from those communities to other community schools. And people got really upset about this plan. Um, one of the reasons why they got really upset was because the local school is really important to the community. Um, you know, it has meaning to them. It's a gathering place. It's a sense of identity. Yeah. Um, other reasons why they were upset were because the schools seemed to be really far away and they didn't want their kids on school buses for a really long period of time. And there are other reasons, too, but those are some of the big ones I heard. Uh, so when I was in high school, I was actually part of a grassroots movement to try to keep my school from being closed. Mm. Uh, and we failed. <laughs> <laughs> we were not successful. Mm -hmm. um, they actually closed my school and combined it with another school the year after I graduated. Uh, but that experience left me wanting to study similar movements in other communities. And later that led to me studying social movements more generally. Uh, so when I was um, in college, I worked at our service learning center and I got to travel to other communities that had experienced the same thing. And I got to talk to other activists who had been involved in stuff like I had been involved in. And so that made me really interested first in this activism around like rural communities and then also in activism around public education. And so I studied opposition to school consolidation, and then later I wrote my dissertation about public school teachers' unions. Mm -hmm. And so for me, public education is a really interesting issue because in the U.S., a lot of us go to public schools. The vast majority of us go to public schools. And most people agree that we should have high-quality public education for everybody. Mm -hmm. But obviously, we don't all agree on how to achieve that. And so a lot of the research that I've been doing kind of focuses on public education, um, on how activists make decisions about the actions they're going to take to try to reach their goals, and on activist engagement with other activist organizations, their coalitions and their partnerships with other groups. 
it's so it's so interesting that you talk about that connection. Um, what what relationship do you see between social movements and unions, or is there a relationship between a social movement and a union? I see a union as a type of social movement organization, mm-hmm. but it also has some really key differences from other social movement organizations. Um, and so a union has, of course, various legal rights and responsibilities and restrictions right. that a social movement organization doesn't have. Now, if you have a union, then your union is legally obligated to bargain collectively on your behalf, assuming that you're in a state where that can happen. It's mm-hmm. legally defined as a union. Um, so a union has to do that. Um, a union may be prohibited from doing certain things like going on strike, either at all or in certain situations. So some of the tactics that they can use might have legal restrictions on them. Um, and so they have various other types of restrictions and um, so, sort of uh, gosh, things that have been put upon them by the law Right. that social movements in general don't have. Um, And it also kind of depends on what union you're in. So Mm -hmm. some unions see themselves as very, very social justice oriented, and they care a lot about not just workers' rights, but also broader human rights. And they're going to work for things in addition to the rights of their members. Mm -hmm. Um, There are other unions that their members sort of perceive them as we pay our dues and you bargain a contract for us, and that's, that's all we're going to do. Yeah. So there's a lot of variation in terms of how movement-like unions are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that you know when you're thinking about is a, a union a social movement, well, some of them really want to be more movement-like and some of them don't necessarily want to be as movement-like. Mm, that makes sense. Um, one of the reasons I wanted to do an episode on social movements and talk about it and talk to you um, is because I'm... I continue to be fascinated with celebrity involvement in social movements. So Mm -hmm. like all of the celebrities who ascended on the women's March and spoke and then their videos went viral and people, you know, just ate up whatever they were saying or the musicians who played or those kinds of things. Um, I think in our pop culture, they sometimes we brush off uh, famous people who have a passion for something Mm -hmm. as, you know, maybe not that important even though they're people and they're allowed to have a passion for something. Um, Right. How do you, how do you think about things like the women's March, March for our lives? Um, Do you see those as fitting this, this idea of what a social movement is or are they kind of more like isolated moments? I think it really depends on what we see in the future. Yeah, um, it's hard to tell if the first time an event happens, if it's going to be a part of a sustained effort or mm-hmm. if it's going to be a one-time event. Mm-hmm. And so if we see it continuing going forward and people continue to stay active and engaged and excited about it, then it's a social movement. Um, if it happens one time and then it sort of fizzles out, then it's a protest. It's an event. It's a gathering. It's a march but maybe it won't be part of a bigger movement. Mm -hmm. So one thing that is really interesting about the Women's March, um, not only did they have another march this year, so they did keep it going in that way, um, but one of the things that was sparked from the Women's March was this movement to get women to run for elected office. Yeah. 
And so we've seen a lot of women who did get involved that way, and not just at the national level, where, of course, we've clearly had some really important, influential uh, female members of Congress who were elected, mm-hmm. um, but also at the state and local level. And so to me, that's a really great example of taking the momentum from a big event like the Women's March, sustaining it after that event is over, and then figuring out new ways to use that momentum to bring about further social change. Yeah, it's how the website She Runs got started. I was reading about that for yeah. um, one of my books, this this complete dedication to helping women who want to run for office learn how to run for office. Yeah. Um, okay. I don't know if this question makes sense uh, or if you even know how to answer it. It's okay if you don't. But do you think <laughs> do you think people make mistakes when they make a social movement, create one, join one? Do you see mistakes being made and if there's a correction that should be happening? Um, well, we're all human, right? <laughs> we all make mistakes. <laughs> um, I will say that when I'm talking to my students and other young people about how you get others involved in a social movement, um, one of the things that I often hear from students is that if we were to just educate the public about this issue, then everybody would be so upset about it and they'd be so passionate about it and they would want to fix it. Mm-hmm. And I think that oh, it's really easy to fall into that mindset, but it doesn't work that way. Um, educating people about an issue is only the first step. Mm-hmm. So most of us are aware of a lot of things that we think are wrong in the world, and we're probably upset about them. We might get angry about them if we think about them. But most of us are also not activists around all of those issues that we know about. So it takes more than just knowing about an issue to make someone want to be an activist. Mm-hmm. And in fact, researchers have consistently found that the best predictor of whether or not someone will join a social movement is whether or not they have been personally asked to do so. Really? So that means that it's not, yeah, it's not that they're really angry. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that they're really sad or even necessarily that they have tons and tons and tons of free time. Um, most of us are motivated to go to an event if our friends are going. Yeah. So we might even go to an event we don't even know much about if our friends are going. And then while we're there, we learn more about the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so well, I think it is really, really important to raise awareness and educate people on the issues. I think it's even more important to invite your friends to your meeting or your rally, whatever you're holding. Get them to come with you. Um, get them to learn more about it while they're there. Get them involved in that social network because those personal connections between people are what really drive a movement and drive people to want to be involved. Yeah, click that repost like button on Instagram and send people over. (laughs) (laughs) Not just click the repost button, but then also tell them that you're having an event on Friday. Please come with me. You can even carpool with me. And bring three (laughs) other people. Yeah, (laughs) Bring three other people. We'll have some cookies. (laughs) (laughs) I am a strong believer that if you feed people, they will show up. They will be there. (laughs) I have been teaching long enough. I know that students will come for free food. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I've been in meetings where they've said there'll be pizza, and I'm like, hmm, suddenly I'm not dreading this. You know, I'll go. (laughs) Um, There are lots of, I think I just gave a few examples of unions or protests in pop culture. Um, Do you have any favorites, or do you have anything that stands out to you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, so as to not keep this interview going for a few hours, <laughs> um, I guess the first pop culture reference comes, that comes to my mind is Les Mis. 
Um, really? Maybe my pop culture references are always are a little too niche. Yeah. Um, but I wrote a lot of my dissertation while listening to Linda. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know that makes... aren't familiar with it. It makes sorry. perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, yeah, just, you know, for people who aren't familiar with it, um, Les Mis is set during a revolutionary period in Paris, and several of the characters are involved in that insurrection, and Victor Hugo, who wrote Les Mis, was a supporter of that rebellion. Um, and so I, I definitely wrote a lot of the dissertation um, while listening to various songs from Les Mis and singing along, and it kind of kept me going. Uh, so that seems to be the first one that comes to my mind. Uh, as far as things that are more recent than 19th century France, <laughs> um, I'm a big fan of musical theater. Um, and, you know, I think about like Green Day's album, American Idiot, which was actually made into mm-hmm. a, a musical. Um, and that's another way that people who might not have listened to popular music but might be into theater can hear this very overtly political message mm-hmm. that the music had to it. Um and so even more recently, we've seen popular music explicitly engaging with the current presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, well, of course, we see popular music that is engaging with politics in every era. Um, but I would especially highlight this feminist artist like uh, Dessa, like oh, yes. Monet, um, Fiona Apple, yes. Lady Gaga. They've been singing about the problems they see in our society. Um, so I guess to get back to the question, when I think about protests in popular culture, I don't really think about movies or TV shows that show people protesting, I tend to think about media that's intentional about engaging with the issues and is trying to inspire people to act. Um, I was in Edinburgh in Scotland last summer, and it was during their Fringe Festival, which is a big theater festival. And oh, the f- that's cool. Yeah, the first, um, the first play that we went to, or musical that we went to, was uh, called Trumped the Musical. And the first, <laughs> the first song was, um, you know, there, there's the intro song in, um, oh goodness, I'm blanking on the name of the film, uh, but the song is Another Day of Sun, and they changed mm-hmm. the lyrics to Another Day of Trump. They changed, <laughs> um, they changed uh, My Shot from Hamilton to mm-hmm. My Pot, and they had a scene of Hillary Clinton had escaped <laughs> to the mountains and she was just going to get high, and that's how she was going to forget about everything. <laughs> Um, they did a really. Oh, that's great. I... We, you know, we could spend an entire episode talking about parody and the use of parody oh, in totally. popular culture. <laughs> totally, they did such a great job. Uh, I walked out of there going, "This, these were all, they were all British and Scottish actors, and how do they figure out what it feels like to be living in this time in America right now?" It's great. <laughs> Um, okay, so this is well, the question. And I think people in the UK probably have some parallels. Oh, sure. <laughs> it's true. They've got Brexit. <laughs> um, sorry, UK. I don't, I'm not trying to insult you. Um, so this is the question I ask everybody. Uh, who or what do you think should be voted most popular? Uh, well, I, I told you I'm a huge chocolate lover. Yeah. I'm going that direction. <laughs> Uh, I think that everybody should know about Tony's Choco Lonely. Um, this is a Dutch company, and it will connect back to activism, I promise. Okay. Um, their mission is to stop child labor and human trafficking that happens on some cocoa farms. Oh, cool. So they want to make sure that cocoa growers have safe working conditions and fair pay, um, you know, that everyone is there of their own free will and they're adults and, you know, they're being treated correctly and fairly mm-hmm. and there are absolutely other companies that also work for their those things so i really like tony's because they also make some really great chocolate <laughs> uh, excellent chocolate for social justice 
everybody wins. That is the best way to end. Thank you so much, Amanda. <laughs> Thank you for, for being on my podcast. Thank you for being my writing buddy. And I'm so excited we got to Aww. do this. Thank you. I enjoyed it. <laughs> Once again, I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Amanda Pullum. You can check out more on my website, uh, mostpopularpod.com. I'm also on Instagram at mostpopularthepod, Twitter at mostpopularpod, and Facebook at mostpopular. And if you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. I'll see you next time.